Hello everyone, I'm Samantha Jane Smith. And I'm Jacob Keynes, and you are listening to the Classical Queer Podcast. Welcome everybody to the Classical Queer Podcast. Today we're so thrilled to have Kim Alexander Dillon with us uh, from Australia. Um, Kim, we usually uh, ask people to, to start with a bit of a bio, um, but I, I will prep it and say that you are a, a composer and a performer, a speaker, um, and a pianist mainly. Yes, correct? I think so. Uh, um, yeah, that's right. To com- composer mainly, I suppose. But every- everything kind of orbits around that. <laughs> That's your method of uh, of entry for composition, maybe. But um, I'd love to hear a bit about your your background. And uh, I, I always tell people it can be as uh, musicy as academicy as you like, uh, or it can be none of the above. And you can just tell us about uh, who you are as a human, and we can go from there. Wow. Yeah, where do I begin? Uh, I I feel like what ties all of my musical stuff together is that I just love music and exploring that love and that curiosity seems to flow into lots of different forms uh, with composition being sort of the main outlet of it. So I've started writing music since I was quite young. I started piano at seven years of age, but even a few years after that I started writing little pieces. And I think even before I learned piano I was recording um my favorite theme tunes from PC games and movies onto cassettes so I could listen back to them because I was really into like uh, scores even back then. And so I seem to show this kind of curiosity for music since I was quite young. And that's what's kept me going this whole time is a curiosity, wanting to learn more and wanting to express more of my love of music. Uh, But even though I was really creative throughout high school and doing music stuff, I never really connected that to the idea of being a composer as a sort of career like that they seemed like different worlds to me like you've got the world of of music with abstract creation all that kind of fun and then you've got the worldly world of (laughs) making an income things like that um and it was only when I thought about doing film scoring and I thought oh that's that's a way that you can make these things work I'll do that uh because I love movies as a lot of young composers do it was kind of a gateway drug the whole film score thing uh but as I studied composition at university I the more I learned about Hollywood the less I wanted to <laughs> anything to do with that system and uh I was sort of cast adrift at that point because I'd, I'd fallen in love with art music while I was at university I hadn't been exposed to many of these things before then I didn't I didn't know who Stravinsky was when I before I got to university um and so I didn't really have a model in my head of what a what a freelance composer or a freelance artist would look like um and that's something that developed in the years after I finished my undergrad, where I, I figured out that I, I wanted to write just because I love writing. That was always the impetus behind it. And that started to flow into creating my own work myself, putting on my own concerts, things like that, performing my own work, um, which was, yeah, a model I had to come to over time while realizing that writing and creating was just an aspect of my being, just something I had to do uh, and I wouldn't care if people listened to it or paid me for it or anything like that. I, I would do it any anyway. Um, happy to say that these days people do like to listen to it and <laughs> occasionally uh, support me to, to write things. But it's been that kind of journey where um, more and more over time I've realised that my creativity for composition has, is like the central part of what I do. 
and has now become sort of the larger part of my career. Whereas I've always been a musician. I work as a jazz pianist, as an accompanist, uh, as a choral conductor, as a speaker for like pre-concert talks before orchestral concerts, all sorts of stuff, all of it music, but it all kind of orbits around this love of creating and curiosity. Uh, that felt like quite a waffle, but hopefully there was some sort of sense of <laughs> narrative in that answer. No, I think it gives us a good snapshot of, of, of exactly where you're kind of uh, coming from. I, I'm always curious uh, when people, uh, because I teach in a university and so I see uh, people kind of enter from all different uh, backgrounds and, and sides of music and things, what their entry point is. And so you say, uh, like, like so many people, that before you got to university, that uh, kind of art music, classical music, however you want to phrase it, was uh, kind of new to you um who, who were your entry points i mean who who did you really glom on to first maybe stravinsky but uh stravinsky was a big big one certainly oh, it's hard to cast my mind back that far because like i remember the ones that i have really really fallen in love with now but i think stravinsky was one of the first like i think i um I asked my first year composition teacher like who should i be listening to because i, d I knew that i didn't know things and he said, listen to the Rite of Spring. It's, it's like the best work of the 20th century. That, those are his <laughs> words to me. And uh, mm -hmm. never having heard anything like it before, the first time I listened to it, uh, I got certain bits of it. The main thing I noticed is I was really into a show called The Marty Bush back then, which was a BBC uh, comedy show from the um, yeah. mid-2000s. Mm -hmm. And the first thing I noticed was like when I heard the Augurs of Spring, that second movement, uh, that that was from one of the episodes of Money Bush because Julian Barrett, who did the music for that show, has popped in all of these like orchestral art music references in there. Um, and so I started noticing those links there. And so, of course, fell in love with those movements first. Um, but the more and more I listened to it, I really just became engrossed in it and it took me away. And it's one of those works that even now I go back to, it continually surprises me. But that was something like I'd never heard before. and. And the experience of going back to something continually and having it envelop you more and more and getting more and more lost in it. That was a new experience for me too, which has been a massive thing I've loved about art music was that sense of these giant abstract worlds that, that a composer can create and draw you into um, more and more over time so that you feel like you're actually gaining more and more with every next listen that's something that I first got from the Rite of Spring, I think. Um, but on top of that... I would say that's probably something that you uh, put into your music. I think so, yeah. I mean, in terms of long stuff, like I really got into Mahler as, uh, as well, things like that, and a little opera and things like that. And I just loved the feeling like that I entered into some sort of dreamscape and then an hour later came out of it and... You felt like you were a changed person, that like you've been through some Alice in Wonderland style journey. And that idea has really taken hold of me. And it's the kind of thing I love to create myself as my works have progressively gotten. Like, I, I haven't gotten to Wagnerian lengths <laughs> yet. Um, I usually just <laughs> tend, uh, I, I, I never endeavor to say, oh, I'm going to write this long sort of thing. I, it's usually the ideas I have tend to be ones that take their course over, you know, 
at least 20 minutes or something like that. And I had found in my post undergrad years where I was still writing shorter beats, pieces of music that I would pack too much in. They would be too dense in a five minute piece because I just had lots of ideas and imagination mm. and I wanted to do everything at once. And then an audience member would be completely confounded by it because I had put in all of these codes and symbols, but like you couldn't crack it unless you knew what you were listening for. And so I think I just naturally come to the conclusion that what I like to do is tell narratives over longer periods of time. Um, and I think I'm a big lover of cinema too. And that's probably played into it, you know, cause cinema usually takes, takes its course over, you know, substantial period of time. I haven't read anything the length of a movie, but I think that form of storytelling has leaked into my subconscious in certain ways. Did, did you find that um, having got into the, the music in a sense of by Stravinsky and Mahler, did you then go back and actually go back to older music and start thinking, hey, you know, I need to listen to Bach and Mozart and, you know, even earlier people? Did you sort of go back and go through the whole sort of process of of going through the history, as it were? Uh, absolutely. Yes. You really hit on something there because um, like I, I knew I didn't have uh, the background that I thought a composer should have because I didn't have a classical upbringing. Um, and so that sense of inadequacy, if you will, fueled uh, a quest I had of like continual self-study, <laughs> which, which I've never stopped doing. And so the best illustration of this might be um, uh, a, a teacher that I really respected, who I met in third year. Uh, he also took a liking to me and he said, uh, Kim, have you read the new Richard Taruskin Oxford History of Western Music that just came out? I think you'd like it. And I took that seriously. And like, I don't know much of anything about the history of classical music. So I, for my 21st birthday, I got all five volumes of it. They're up, up there, I think, on my, on my shelf. I got all five <laughs> volumes of it and I read the whole series cover to cover over that, that year or something with pencil markings for things because, oh, wow. again, I felt that I didn't know things and the way that I approach that is systematically study things and go through. And to this day, like, I'm still looking for I'm still finding my blind spots and addressing them one by one. Um, a couple of the pieces I'm writing at the moment are sort of Baroque context, like one of the ensembles I'm writing for has Baroque instruments in it. Mm. And so I'm aware of quite a lot of Baroque music and I love a lot of Bach and know quite a lot of Bach and have read uh, a fair amount about him. But as for the rest of the Baroque period, I felt really in the dark. So I'm like, okay, now's the time. Let's get out some books and Every time I read about a composer, I will yeah. then go and make a playlist of them on Spotify. So I've been very systematic about it and and ha have been on the lookout for things I didn't know in order that I could sort of fill in the blanks. And the thing is, I start this process about self-education, but I end up always falling in love with certain composers and finding things I never would have found otherwise and then coming out really in love with certain names that I had come across just through this process of its self-education, but um, I come out of it all the richer for it. But yeah, that's a big part of my um, continuing journey, I think. I, can I, just, I think it's kind of interesting as somebody who hasn't got a big musical education, it, it's, it's kind of nice to hear somebody who's really good at music sort of 
floundering a little bit with the history of music because it's it's something you know um um i mean i'm i'm quite old and i'm still discovering music and things from the past that are kind of interesting so i i kind of think it's brilliant to hear that and and you know i'm sure that's going to make a a difference you know every time i hear something it makes a difference the way i I listen to music so i think that's a really constructive thing i think it's great to be able to look you know expand that horizon like that i think uh and yeah it's it feels exciting for me because it, it's fun to know that you don't know things and feel like you're continually discovering things and there's always something new to find. Um, and I think it has influenced the way I write as well, particularly in the last couple of years where it's become more in my consciousness that this is part of my background as a composer now, this sense of that I didn't grow up with these things and I've had to uh, do a lot of self-study because it means that I don't take it for granted, at least I try not to, that uh, that that my work speaks. I, I I know what it's like to be on the outside and feel like you're not good enough to to understand this music or something like. And certain pieces by like the more modernist composers like Boulez or so, whom I do love, uh, I've had to listen quite a lot to their music and think about it more and more and think, of what are they trying to say? Before I eventually fell in love with it, and I I was questioning a lot a few years ago, like, do you have to is is modern music always going to be like that is the kind of thing or it's like unless you listen to this multiple times and study what i'm trying to say you're this is off limits to you and like there must be a way to be uncompromising in your language yet still be always keeping in mind the outside listener and and be trying to invite them into it uh and i think that's become a, a large part of my language now is I I don't wish to dumb down my ideas and I I can't anyway like my imagination does wild things and I, I go where it wants to go but I'm always thinking of someone who doesn't listen to art music and who doesn't hasn't submerged themselves in art music history like I have chosen to do uh and how can the music itself actually be leading you down the rabbit hole so that you feel like you've got some grounding in this experience yet go into this uh this strange land that the composer is bringing you into um so i try to do that with music but i also i also do a lot of speaking before my own works it's something i'm very passionate about and uh, people have told me they appreciate it i like to be a composer that stands up and actually thinks carefully about the framework an audience has before they hear a work i like to talk about talk about it in a way that actually gets them ready to experience it the way I would like them to experience it. Um, because I, although I would like to have the idealist view that a lot of work just speaks for itself. Um, I think for a lot of contemporary audiences, you aren't submerged in this world. It's really, really helpful to have some sort of a framework going into something, uh, so that you can enjoy it (laughs) the most, the most that you can on a first listen. I think that's fantastic. I mean, I, every time I'm a, mainly a conductor and it's so nice to be able to work with composers that want to talk about their work. There's, there's so many times where I'm conducting something and it's weird and complex and strange and complicated. And uh, I love your phrase. Uh, uh, you said uh, unwavering with your language or, or un, um, uh, uncompromising, uh, I think. I should have remembered your wonderful turn of phrase. Uncompromising with your, with your language. Um, 
and that's great and that's that's fantastic but then sometimes uh you say would would you like to to say anything about it they're like no 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 it speaks for itself and then you just present this bizarre strange <laughs> world to people and they they really have no entry point so it's so nice to to hear you say that you'd like to talk about it you should talk about it it's your piece it's great it's something you've mm. uh spent so much time uh building building that world for people that I love that you want to talk about it and, and give people the context. Um, I think the other thing that I think when when I hear you talk about your your love of history and your love of um, uh, past composers and kind of delving into all those different worlds, it for new music and like I'll use that in like the broadest version of the word new music, but like it is interesting then uh, that you use things like sonata, like sonata for piano. Um, that it gives a, a framework, it gives like an entry point and whatever is held within can be kind of whatever it wants to be. Like you say, you can let your mm -hmm. imagination run wild. Um, but sometimes even that um, framework of it's going to be a sonata for flute and piano <laughs> just helps people uh, walk into that with a, with a different uh, mindset. But maybe you can tell us about the first piece we're going to listen to a bit, the, this uh, sonata for flute. Yeah, well, I, I love what you've said about the idea of writing a sonata already because it's definitely in mind with this piece. Like for me, a sonata is just like a description of a box or it's like, okay, I kind of have a very broad understanding of what this is going to mean. Um, but but it means that you can fill it with whatever you, whatever you want really. Whereas like if you call a piece for a flute and piano, reflections of flute and piano, like people's minds are going to go off in all sorts of different directions and uh, you'll have to rescue it from there to, to, to say what you want to say or not rescue it. Um, whereas Sonata for Flute and Piano is like just such a, it doesn't, it says enough and also it doesn't say much at all in the right kind of way. But this work, I, I sort of imagined like this, this work about, this work is about sort of botanical mindfulness, right? So each movement is about a certain flower, which I looked at for a very long time and, and just thought, what if I write a piece of music about this flower? Cause I, I like that idea because flowers don't um, they don't make sounds that we can hear like without, with our naked ear. And, like how, how do you represent that into music? Like you're going to have to get to all sorts of level abstractions to do that. And in doing so, I found that my attempt to interpret these flowers then interacted with my own memories, my own associations with colour and music, all sorts of subjective things, uh, subjective layers and um, refractions if you will to create the the resulting pieces and I thought that process was beautiful because that I think that's how you know people in, interpret the world like you everyone looks at the same thing quite differently and also if you look at something so small for such a long period of time you start to end up gazing into your own into your own subconscious into your own subjective way of interpreting things and so it, it was a kind of a mindfulness piece I suppose but uh but the idea of calling it sonata was to make that process interact with these old notions of like I think I called the first movement fantasia and the second was scherzo and this third one which is the one I've uh we're gonna hear was, was called lentos like slow and reflective but uh I like the idea of these kind of organic notions I'm playing with the subjective and the subconscious playing with these kind of old stiff ideas of form and tradition and how those two things interact 
I thought was really kind of cool uh, as a jumping off point for people to just read into this work, whatever they want to, as a kind of dreamscape uh, thing. Although there was a lot of my own subjective emotional goings on uh, under the surface, which maybe we'll talk about afterwards. Um, but I think that's probably enough. So the third movement is called Lento and is based on the, uh, wasn't the coastal tea tree. It was the coastal tea tree. Uh, Leptospermum levigatum. levigatum. I don't know how good my Latin is, but yeah, you can look up the coastal tea tree. That's the flower for this third movement. Let's take a listen then.
It is it's such a like uh, hearing uh, about your uh, kind of impetus for the piece. It it translates so beautifully. It's it's always funny to hear like what um, what people wanted to write about uh, after you listen to it, uh, because now it it seems suddenly so clear <laughs> that it's about a flower. <laughs> weirdly, um, that it's that it makes so much sense. Um, uh, from like a, a compositional standpoint, like what you spend time looking at uh, flowers and thinking about how does this flower sound? Um, what what did that translate to for you um, for the flute? Like what? I mean, I think we can listen to it, but from your words, like what what are you what are you uh, emulating in the flower with pitch and and rhythm and timbre? And... All right. So to get specific, um, and it was different for every movement in this one. I was really enamored by the structure of this flower. It had like a certain really bright white petals and this kind of red ring and then these um, uh, green center. And I thought, how can I represent that structure in music? And I thought, what if, what if structure was like a camera, like in a, <laughs> a camera just moving around the flower? And I arbitrarily decided when I'm going to move it towards the white or towards the red and towards the green. Um, so it was kind of like a, a, uh, a set of variations on these themes. Uh, and again, I don't expect you to actually listen to go, Oh, that's what, that's what she's doing. It, it's more, that was a way of me creating these dreamscapes and music that I thought was interesting, but also expressive. So I looked at these elements on their own. I thought, how would I represent that whiteness or that redness? And because I have quite an overactive imagination, like I will quite quickly make associations in my head and I'll think, ah, oh, this is kind of, thing I want here and that will that will get interpreted through piano and flute language <laughs> um, and that happens quite quite naturally I don't write this kind of thing at the piano I'm often thinking just using my imagination and what I want to hear and what 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 that that part of the plant makes me think of and then the music comes <laughs> it's hard to describe that part of the process because that's kind of the mystery of <laughs> art isn't it but um, so and it can get quite specific too like the red theme has the um the anthers of the plant which is those very kind of alien looking things on this particular flower and so i kind of like the idea of them sort of springing up at weird angles and then coming to this point at the end so the flutes they're going like these quick sudden 
gestures up. And so the theme became this idea of a gesture with a plink at the end. Uh, but everything else was up for grabs, right? Like, like they would have a sort of semi-improvised quality where it's like they all kind mm. of happen at different times. But the theme was this this gesture. And I think my music is getting is getting more gestural as, as time goes on because I uh, it's, it's becoming more linked in with the dramatic or like the theatrical, which is a big part of my love <laughs> as well, um, which particularly played into a later work we're gonna, going to hear. Um, but so there'll be quite some specific things like the anthem thing, along with some very subjective things I was making. But again, that interaction of those things was what I found. I thought that idea was beautiful. And I like that strange mix of things so that what actually comes out in the end, because it was so uh, subjective and abstract and based on my own brain, the idea is what would come out would be something that anyone could interpret their way through and I, I welcomed people reading their own meaning into the work. And I feel like that can be a throwaway line sometimes. I've heard it said like, oh, whatever, it's just what you say when, but like that, that was built in mm -hmm. to the intention from the beginning was that how can I write a work where it truly is about what you hear is what you hear and, and get to a level of abstraction mm. where people can feel disorientated. It doesn't sound like a lot of other music they hear, but yet still, they can find things they can hang on to because um, amongst all the sort of uh, strange abstract music, there are lots of major chords and <laughs> major scales and gestures people might hear. Like I don't shy away from any of that kind of thing, but I also try to, I never try to dumb down my harmonies. Har harmony is like my, the thing I, that's most dear to me as, as you might be able to tell from listening to something like that, or it's like, um, it's the thing I yeah care the most about. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm really glad you said that you didn't expect other people to to image the flowers because I certainly didn't. Um, but 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 what I but what I like really loved about this piece for me uh, was this interplay between the flute and the piano. I mean, it starts off fairly sparse, if you know what I mean. It's kind of there's a lot of white space to move into, and then then it almost for me was like a, a I was in a conversation. Um, between two people, if you like, or, or two different thoughts between the flute and the piano, each one with a different tenor, I guess it would be, or timbre to it. So there was like, you know, the, the slightly rougher piano and then the tweety flute up here. It was kind of, so it was almost for me like a conversation that went through. So so I'm kind of glad you didn't expect us to pick up the flower theme, but but it was, I did I did find particularly the space in the piece, if you know what I mean, was was very meaningful, particularly at the beginnings and ends where it's sort of, you know, the, the, the distance between notes came sparse, more sparsely. And that was kind of allowed my imagination to move into the space. So something different, but but a different interpretation. No, I, I totally love that. And um, a chip, I think you used the word white at the start, which is the first opening of it was the white part mm. of the flower and only using the white keys of the piano. So I'm glad that came across. It must be said though, that normally I wouldn't, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't withhold the information about it being about flowers. Um, I think which is the nature of how we set up this, this conversation. But before I perform this work, oh, I yeah. let the audience know sure. it's about flowers. I want people to know that, but then from that point on, it's like your, your, <laughs> your imagination can do the rest, but I, 
um, I like people to know that that was the impetus for it. Yeah. I, I, I just want to say, because we talked a little bit about this before we heard the piece and uh, about your interaction with the audience here. And, and, and I think this is kind of important because as somebody who listens to a lot of music, it, it's not common. I feel that, that a composer actually stands up and says, Hey, this is what I felt, but you feel what you like about it. You know, I, I, I was recently at something oh, recently a year ago when, when somebody who was, who'd written this piece stood up and said something about what the piece was about and, and lost everybody within the first 30 seconds by talking about which chords and progressions and this kind mm. of thing. And, and a lot of, non-musical people just sit there going oh, it's kind of irrelevant to me what what does this mean to me so i kind of feel this is important um for those not not with a, such a musical background is is what does it do for you rather than hey it's i know it sounds like a sonata or it's this that and the other what do i feel from it yeah absolutely and i think that's been a big part of all of my work like my, my choir conducting is of community choir conducting nature where most of the people in the room uh, aren't training musicians, which I absolutely love. Like they're quite big choirs I get to work with. And so I get harmonies and all sorts of things that happen, but it's, it's all done through gesture, through analogies, through completely non-technical language, because I love that idea that you can still make these amazing things happen. You can still get people to do really cool musical things if you just explain it in a way that doesn't rely on prior knowledge and sort of elitist language. And that's leaked into my talking as well so when i do pre-concert talks for um for orchestras uh to the audience it's usually about the music they're about to hear and i like to unpack it for them and again not rely on any of the sort of usual terms i just like to just what is the music actually doing and you can express that using language that everyone un understands often like analogies of things which they all know from everyday life because it does link that way. I think I was first like really empowered in this by hearing Boulez describe, I can't remember if it's his, his own music or someone else's as telling the orchestra, it should sound like a dripping tap. And, and that for me was like hearing mm. someone of his caliber describe what the music should do. It should sound like a dripping tap. It's like, and, and I realized that I'd always made these little some, like associations between things that I've heard in real life and the things I'm trying to write and that sort of gave me permission to think, okay, if someone up there can, can do that, maybe it's okay to think that way. And so that, that informs how I speak about music to audiences. You can do it with language that everyone understands. Um, and so of course that also leads into how I write music, uh, as well. Whereas I, yeah, I get very technical. I have a mm. very theory brain but I don't expect anyone else to care about that. If one day henceforth, if someone wants to analyze anything I've written in an ivory tower, best of luck to them. And I think they'll find lots of things to, to keep them interested, but I'm not going to pretend that's what audiences, <laughs> contemporary audiences want to know about. And uh, I think any contemporary composer, you have to, you have to reckon with the very, very different context we're in now that, uh, different from like the mid or early 20th century. Like it's just such a different world. And uh, every composer has to find their own path as to how to define what it is to be a composer in this contemporary context uh, with audiences who don't share that tradition and that, that background. Like what does it mean to communicate with that audience? <laughs> um, I think mm. it's something everyone has to figure out, but this is 
part of what I guess why I'm so passionate about it because I because I want to connect with people. Um, and I've found that writing and writing in a way that intentionally wants to connect with people and also happy to speak about your music in a way that uh, prioritizes their (laughs) accessing it. I don't know if I'm making any sense here, but (laughs) I think you know what I mean. (laughs) We do. (laughs) (laughs) It's quite late Um, when we're recording this. So. Fair. Maybe we should say uh, for for everybody uh, listening, it's quite late where you are. It's quite early where I am. <laughs> everything, uh, everything from here forward is uh, as best as we can do. It's good. <laughs> um, it's uh, it's so nice. I, I, as a as a complete aside, uh, my my uh, my little musicology brain is is so pleased, but because we've we've now talked about Boulez and Tereskin in. Uh, such a short amount of time, but it's it's so nice, and, and I think it's the first time both of them have been mentioned on the the podcast. That um, Boulez is such a, a a favorite of mine as a as a conductor and as a as a writer, um, and of course Taruskin is just like was just recently passed. Only I think he just died last year. Oh, I didn't know that. My goodness, uh, such a yeah, no, very, very recently. Yeah, just uh, just passed away. But uh, Truskin was, uh, was such a, a, a terrifying <laughs> pillar of a, a person. Um, there's so many stories of people meeting him at, at conferences and being he was he was quite a like huge human as well. Like he was very <laughs> tall. He was like six foot four and uh, intense. Anyway. <laughs> Trust me, bless. Great. Anyway, um, I would love to hear uh, hear about your your next piece that we're going to listen to, Portrait Itself. Um, and I'm wondering where um, where it comes from, of course, um, but how it connects to your ideas of, of, of writing for uh, people and, and entry points, like we've been talking about, and something that I'm going to assume is, is fairly personal because it's called Portrait Itself. Um, but tell us about. Yeah. Tell us about the piece. Uh, so this is a this is a big one. Like the full piece is 40, 41 minutes <laughs> or so. Um, this is the write the epilogue, but this is the most personal thing I've ever written and probably could ever write. So I uh, I started a gender transition in twenty twenty one, the start of that year, uh, and previously I describe how I lived life as a sort of constructed self. It was a, entirely a performance that I was forced to enter into in order to survive uh, in, because I didn't know what had happened with my brain. Like we didn't, I, I was born in the, in the early nineties. And so things, the, the conversation around uh, these things was a lot less developed back then. And so when I reached the torment of puberty, I had no idea what was going on with me. And I think as a way of surviving, I, created this sort of persona which I lived as for a long time uh which worked on the outside but I was full of despair for most of my life um in a really sort of dark way and things sort of were getting to the most extreme low point um until I figured it all out which is a very long story uh in late 2020 and realized that I was in fact transgender and 
that I had, a, I now had a way of being able to save my life by, <laughs> by transitioning. Um, and which is all gone very well, like socially and, <laughs> and all that, in all the other ways. But anyway, when I was going through that in 2021, I was also thinking about how do I say goodbye to this thing I was living as and how do I express that journey? Because I tried to articulate it to people and done that in various ways through lots of different forms of storytelling in order to communicate what was happening with me to those around me. Uh, but personally, I didn't, I felt like I needed to do something to mark this moment and, and be able to move on and almost say thank you to this constructed character I'd made because they'd, they'd kept me alive for, for so long, even though, you know, uh, it was all a facade in some way. So what I decided to do was set these Kierkegaard texts, which I, which I loved since I first found them when I was 21. And I felt they represented this character, these um, texts from the start of, Kierkegaard's book, Either Or, which is the first chapter is called Diasomata, and these little fragments, a lot of them like darkly comedic, existentially despairing, <laughs> um, little little fragments, which I always <laughs> loved, but for which for me represented <coughs> represented that that self. And I remember thinking when I was 21, I should set these to music. I should do, I just love these. Little did I know that, you know, over 10 years later, the reason I would set them would be something I would never have expected to happen. And and I was uh, fortunate to work with Stephen Marsh at the time. He was the baritone. He'll hear in the third track um, on the podcast as well. And he was the one who told me, Kim, I want you to write me a song cycle. I don't know what it's going to be at. Just write me a song cycle. And then all of this happened in my life and I knew what my song <laughs> song cycle was going to be. So it turned out being this giant uh setting of all these diasomata texts with a, a extra texts from Kierkegaard's later work, The Sickness Unto Death, which um, for any other trans listeners out there describes the situation I've been describing remarkably accurately <laughs> to the point where I Googled like Kierkegaard transgender and other like academics had made the same link between the ideas in The Sickness Unto Death and the experience I'm describing. And so they, they kind of bookended the work and in these spoken sections. And so, again, the work was highly subjective and highly abstract, expressing something that could only be expressed in this kind of way. Um, and I don't think I was necessarily doing it in order to to uh, get audiences on my side. It was it was more a personal, like, I have to do this as a kind of, I had in mind, like, yeah. the ideas of the Vikings burning ships, you know, as a kind of <laughs> commemorative act. Um, uh, and it... it it worked mm. like <laughs> I, I was able to move on after that, but what I didn't expect, um, we had a big premiere performance last year in April with forest collective. I think you've had Ev Evan Lawson on the program at some point or something to do with, um, with him. He's a friend of mm -hmm. mine. And so he, uh, yeah, organized that. that and he's ensemble and I played piano for it and Stephen Marsh sang it. And I was not prepared for how much it connected with audiences. It, yeah, it, like that night was is completely surreal in my mind, and the way that people connected their own stories with it, like of just having to find out who you are and deciding to be that person and get rid of the the constructions and the facades on the top. People found themselves in this tale, um, which I think is 
I don't know how that works because like these Kierkegaard settings are very, very dark. And then uh, the way I chained them together to tell this story was quite abstract. Um, but look, I'll be forever thankful for it. And uh, I, I'll never be able to recreate that moment in my life. And the, all the memories that went into creating these pieces are gone now. Like I've wiped that mm -hmm. stuff from my head and, and moving on. Um, but the, the excerpt you're about to hear is the very, very end of the work, which is sort of the catharsis after a lot of, uh, admittedly, a lot of it quite fun, but a lot of dark stuff, which just keeps sinking down and down until it reaches a sort of the lowest point and starts to rise up towards this final moment when the character uh, realizes what it was that was chaining them and uh, finds a way forward. And so the final text is taken from Kierkegaard's Sickness Unto Death and it's a kind of summation of the of the state in which there is no despair at all, uh, which is in relating itself to itself and in wanting to be itself, the self is grounded transparently in the power which established it, which when you first read it on the page is just such cold and <laughs> clinical sounding language but which for me like captured it. And so I've said it in a very, very lyrical way and you hear the whole ensemble playing with it. And this chorale, which I've been hinting at throughout the whole piece as kind of the soul behind the scenes now becomes the, the fabric of the whole orchestra. Um, and Stephen closes the work. And then the viola plays the tune that Stephen sings up an octave, sort of suggesting one's voice going up. <laughs> Uh, with me playing piano behind it, all sorts of symbolism on offer. But I think you, I think with this particular one, you can feel quite uh, openly what what is being expressed. Let's, let's take a listen. That state in which there is no despair at all. In relating itself to itself and in wanting to be itself. The self is grounded, transparently, in the power which established it. No. 
Interesting choice of philosopher, Kierkegaard, I must admit. I mean, if you, you know, for an existential crisis, it's kind of the perfect person. Um, I was interested, though, about what you what you said about marking your transition. And and I think that's that's kind of an important thing, I think. And as you said, thanking the person you were before, Um, because all of us feels that that, you know, we're now the person that we should be. 
but in the past, you know, that person, it sort of, it did what it did to keep us here on this earth, you know, as it were. So I kind of found that interesting. I mean, you know, you wrote some fantastic music. I actually burnt my clothes, which I think is kind of the difference between us. Maybe I kind of, kind of got destructive at that point, but, um, but, but, but I mean, uh, without going too personally into this, um, you know, Kierkegaard has a very, um, I don't know what the word to use is, a very, uh, I don't want to say Christian view, but he, he, you know, a lot of his talk is about Christianity and, and things like that. And, and, you know, how, how you believe in faith and, and this kind of thing. Did, did that come into your feeling at all? Or was it, or was it just this kind of the existential crisis bit of it? That was the, the, the sort of Kierkegaard. I'm just kind of interested at, if it's uh, well, too personal, don't worry. It's uh... that's all right. Well, Kierkegaard has many many faces, and I think the 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 one who writes Diasomata is one of his pseudonyms. I can't remember which one. Sorry to any Kierkegaard scholars out there. Um, mm. Although I think I believe it was his own name behind the sickness unto death, um, which the latter work. So Diasomata doesn't seem to link in with that side of him in any obvious way at all. Like the the text seemed to just be these collection of um, of almost journals or poems from a soul that's really in despair and trying to figure out who they are. Um, and they, they work on their, on their own terms. Like you can just read those and, and get into them without having to know anything about Kierkegaard around them. Whereas the sickness unto death, uh, that phrase of course comes from, um, I think it's the new test. I think it's the Lazarus story in the new Testament. Yeah. But, and so he does link it to that in some way, but, substance of the book it seems you can can vary in my mind at least you can divorce it from that setting like without <laughs> without doing it that much damage like i think he does link to it especially in certain later parts <laughs> of the book um uh, but but i think i was getting i was resonating so much with how it described this certain experience so i think it's part part of the fabric of his worldview mm -hmm. um but i think he has very very interesting ideas that don't necessarily link to that, um, to a specifically, mm. to a specific mm -hmm. theological framework, even though perhaps they might, um, they might for him. Uh, so that wasn't really, no, it wasn't a part of this, this work. No. I mean, I guess I wasn't linking it directly to theological maybe, but, but more of a faith thing. The only reason I say that is that, um, I, I guess for me, I always had some faith and I'm using this in a very broader term that there was a better place for me to be. And that, that, that kind of, that, that, that I had the faith that transitioning would actually be my savior of my life. And, and I, so I kind of, I, I don't know, I, is it, for me, there was kind of a, a leap of faith. Oh, maybe I'm being a bit too existential. Maybe well, I'm not really very... pushing it here, but for me, there was a kind yeah. of leap of yeah. Sorry, go on. That's a very Kierkegaardian idea, that leap of faith. And I can't remember which book that comes from, but I think maybe Fear and Trembling or something where this is yeah. very kind of this one soul against <laughs> against the world or it's like, and ha having to make a leap into the dark mm. or it's like you're going into territory, which you really don't understand, but you take that leap of faith. And so, yeah, I, I totally can see how that would relate <laughs> to the situation. I think in my case, um, uh, it, it was more gaining clarity on, on what was wrong with me 
uh, as in like what what had been going mm. on because I knew something was wrong for a long long time like I knew my head wasn't <laughs> something was yeah things were very very dark inside but I had no idea why I didn't know why I got depressed when I was in <laughs> a teenager and I don't know why I still was and like no. um and the sickness unto death has that kind of quality the book I, I mean it has that quality of trying mm. to uh what's the word um that doctors use when they Oh my goodness. Well, I can't remember this word. There's like a word for, um, uh, when you give a label to a sickness or you try and anyway, whatever that word is that's eluding me oh, for the moment. I know what you mean. Yeah. 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 Uh, had that kind of thing where it diagnose, it's sort of diagnosing, uh, mm. what a certain issue is that leads to certain existential symptoms, shall we say. And so th that was my experience of, oh my goodness, this is the answer that has eluded me all this time. This is why I felt like I wasn't a real person. This is why I felt like I was following a script. This is why I felt like I was living in a half dream the whole time. All these, all these varied psychological phenomena, which I'd felt and taken for granted for so many years now found their solution in, in this. And I'm happy to say that I was, <laughs> I was right. Like that was the answer and it has worked. And it's like, um, and so my choice of that text sort of linked in with that way of looking at things as a kind of uh, solution to a puzzle or a problem, because that's how I, that was my personal experience of, of, I guess, waking myself up, realizing I had to transition. Um, and the Diasomata work tells mm -hmm. that kind of story. It's like you, it depicts this self, which is locked in a cycle of continual self-construction and fluctuating identity. But then in the end, uh, has the kind of insight to figure out what's happening and then break through and then sort of a happy ending <laughs> at the end of it. So it's, it's that kind of way of looking at it. Yeah. <laughs> do, do you feel, I mean, one of the interesting things, I, I'm sorry to rabbit on about this, but I mean, one of the interesting things that, that trans people undergo is that we do spend a lot of time self-assessing ourselves and 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 sort of you know being very critique about ourselves and and being oh we're never good enough and we're never sort of like how can we ever be this you know there's like a cycle of of continual reevaluation of oneself for many people and, and this come for me comes over in this work is is kind of this evaluation of oneself how how does how how in your in how has that oh gosh sorry my words have gone in how did how have other people responded to this because do, do you know do they do they have the same anxiety i mean i'm sure they do but but do you find people respond in the way in in a way non-trans people to to the sort of anxiety or 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 a crisis in this music do you find that yes i think they do like they often haven't been specific about what what it was they're responding to, because there's a lot in there and I'll, like probably people can find any of the diasomata texts, any number of them, which they relate to. Uh, but I think what become, what became universal about it was the sense of, uh, as I hinted at before, the wiping away of the facade and uh, pretending to be someone you're not and deciding definitively to be yourself. I think that theme seemed to be something people related to i don't know how much they can relate to just how mm. how far down into the darkness the thing went um 
I, yeah, I would have to ask them more, <laughs> ask them more specifically about that. <laughs> Shall we? Do you want to move on to the uh, the third piece? Um, which is um, called If We Shadows, I think, and it's a work for piano and baritone and uses Midsummer Night's Dream text. So another ambitious use of, uh, of use of text <laughs> from from other places. So would you like to say something about that? That's right. So this is the work that Stephen and I did before I wrote Diasomata um, and was the last thing I completed before I transitioned as well. Um, so I, I found that this part of my life has leaked into all of the stuff I'm writing. Just a quick aside that the end of the flute sonata excerpt, which I, I began writing that flute sonata before I had my big awakening, but, and I had it while I was writing it. And so at the end of the third movement of the flute sonata, it suddenly becomes this very, very exuberant dance, like really big, like quite rhythmical stuff at the end. And that was me being really happy that, that I'd found the center of myself because as I was looking through this flower, I found the center of the flower and I found the center of me. So that's what I was saying before. And I was like, my own emotional journey just leaked into it in a way that I never intended someone to know, but it's just in there. Anyway, um, in If We Shadows, I hadn't, I hadn't woken myself up yet, but looking back on it now, it seems quite prophetic in the sense that I've been talking about how I felt like I was playing a character for most of my life, like I was performing. And if we shadows, of course, that text comes from the end of Midsummer Night's Dream where Puck the Fairy is talking to the audience and saying, uh, post the show, like, if anyone's offended by what you've just seen, just pretend it was all a dream and, you know, we can leave <laughs> happy together. Just like, just, just write it off as being a dreamscape if you were offended by it. Um, and I, I like the idea of this being this final thing I wrote, the final thing I wrote when I was performing before I transitioned. And so it, it's taken on a special quality for me. But I love that idea. And this also links in nicely with what we were talking about before in terms of uh, reaching audiences and communicating with them. Because I I found I fell in love with a lot of atonal music, serialist stuff, but was frustrated with how the like the work I had to do to get myself to the point where I could hear them properly and hear them for what they were and enjoy them was considerable. Like it, there's a reason that these works you don't just the so-called man in the street like probably isn't going to get it into uh, Boulez and Weyburn terribly quickly, uh, much as I wish they would. But I love this music now, and I wanted to share it with people, but I. I felt uh, that there was this big obstacle in the way. And so I thought, what if I use in this piece, I'll start very melodiously and very kind of like rhythmic language that anyone can kind of get, get into. But then as, as the singer talks about just pretend it was all a dream, it then descends into this mm. uh, dream world of atonal. And it actually was written with the 12 tone system, like the middle section, but it becomes very gestural and very dreamscape where and an abstract word, like lots of symbols and things that happen, like a sort of animated film, I suppose, uh, as a way of framing someone's listening to that kind of music because it's a dream, like you've just fallen asleep and then things don't quite make sense anymore. But you start to take things as you would in dreams where you don't tend to apply the same sort of rational uh, approach to, as, as you do when you're awake. But then 
if you still weren't into it, you slowly wake up and at the end I give you back the melody and hoping that we can make amends and leave as friends mm. after all of that. And so it was kind of my framing, this wanting to share the idea of atonal music with people in a way that that was inviting to them, but also it's okay if you if you weren't into it. I'll I'll give you the melody as we finish. Just to, <laughs> but then I, I think there's like a hint at the very very end of some of the twelve tone stuff, just as the piano as the piano is finishing up, as a kind of maybe you're still dreaming idea. Well, let's have a listen to it.
To me, it still sounds very uh, lush, even in its um, even if even in its uh, devolved twelve tone serialism moments. And it's interesting that you, uh, like you say, you still give the listener this uh, thread, this like through line to kind of hold on to, even in the dreamscape, even in the the weirdest moments, even the strangest bits. Uh, it is still. Uh, a comfortable uh, for people who are kind of walking in and listening to it uh, moment, and I and I think the uh, real beauty of that is uh, how accessible it is. It doesn't seem uh, forced. You're not like flipping between languages. The language is the same. You're kind of just uh, allowing us to follow through the the weirder bits, the complicated bits, and then the more uh, melodious bits. Um, what I mean, what do you what do you uh, hope people take from that when they listen to it? Um, I guess as a, maybe a different way of saying it, like as a as a composer who's introducing 
the twelve tone, the serialism, the weirder bits, uh, but bringing them through on this kind of melodious uh, thread. How do you want people to experience it? How do you want to take them through that narrative? Uh, I think I would hope that they have the experience you just described, where they feel like they have been taken uh, in a sort of thread throughout the whole thing. So it shouldn't it shouldn't feel like a disjointed sudden moment where it's like, oh, this is different. Like, it should feel like it's just naturally kind of fall into that kind of language. And I'm, I'm glad it comes across as lush because I think that's something that tends to happen in all my music, but uh, I will never ever write music that is complicated for the sake of writing complicated music. Like I, I, um, I, I, I despise all like elitism and artifice in, in trying to be something that I'm not, which if it hasn't come across already in the stuff I've been saying. And so, and, <laughs> and part of my journey of coming, coming to love 12 tone music was, uh, and this happens a lot of undergrad people. I think you come across it as, as this kind of cold thing where it's like, you must like this because this is the way of the future. This is modern music. And it's like, it's, it's treated as this kind of academic and, uh, uh soulless thing but you have to, you must rip your heart out and your soul in order to be a composer. But then I came across <laughs> the right teachers and the right people who, who spoke about this kind of music with the same love that they talked about Wagner and things like that. And, and, and people who I respected and, and knew that they weren't trying to be pretentious or they weren't trying to win any particular accolade. Like they just loved it for what it was. And that really opened me up to it where, uh, where where I learned that okay, there is a beauty to this music uh, that has nothing to do with uh, the fact that it's seen as the music of the future or like it's completely divorced from those narratives. It can be beautiful for its own sake. So uh, I want when I write that kind of music, I do it genuinely. This is the hope anyway. I'm doing it because I want to hear those kinds of sounds, and I still organize the sounds in a way that's pleasing to my ear and uh, fits in with my own aesthetics and I'm still feeling what the music's going to do next even though I'm restricting myself to the notes in this 12 tone row I I will never suddenly decide to write music I don't like for a bit like I'm writing 12 tone music because I enjoy 12 tone music as much as I enjoy writing the melodious stuff too for me it's it's all music and so I think my own harmonic sensibilities and musical sensibilities, including the lushness, will carry through from the first part into the middle into the end, even though I've radically changed the way the music is organised. Um, and that was the hope that people would find it easy to follow along with um, and almost like for, for people who would think that they wouldn't like 12 tone music, it's almost like I, the hope is that I fool them into actually enjoying themselves <laughs> through this process. <laughs> I was a bit, bit, I wrote down some questions to ask you before before we started this, and and one of the questions that we often ask people is um was was how being part of the queer community affects your music, but quite honestly, um I think your music is fantastically honest and and personal. We've heard three sort of really honest pieces, if you know what I mean. They're really personal and say things about you. 
so, so I was going to ask that question, but I think we've already answered it. We've already asked it and answered it in, in the music that you've provided. And, and I, I, I think that's, I, I don't know, for me, that, that's, a, that's a really wonderful thing to be able to express how you felt about your transition um, and, and allow other people into that space by your music, um, because it is a very difficult thing to explain to people. And and I think what you're giving people is a sense of what it's like. And and I think that is important, at least I, I think for me and certainly I think for, for, for other members of the, the queer community. So, so yeah, I'm afraid you've already taken my question away, but, uh, but I think it's, oh, um, but that. I think it's, it's, it's really amazing. So. Nah, I, I'll, I'll, hey, it's okay. I've got millions of other questions. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. But it's um, fantastic. I mean, yeah. really, really great to have such a personal. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and uh, I've been sort of surprised by how much people have found their own, uh, their own meanings in the works that I've written, even though they have been personal. Because I think in looking very deeply at my own psyche, if you will, I I see it more as telling the story of another human being or like the story of looking into your own psyche in a way that sort of generalizes it so that people can find, they can relate to the idea of looking deeply into yourself as they related to this very specific diasomata piece. Um, and I think I prefaced, because I spoke to the audience at length before that work, and one of the things I said was that in making this, like it, I no longer think of it, as my story, I think of it as one of our stories, like one of the stories of the human race and enshrined in in this piece in that way. Yeah. It's become something external to me that people can find themselves in. And so I don't find myself thinking, please understand my music so that you therefore understand me. It's more that people tend to respond to music that's authentic and, and, and makes itself vulnerable and, isn't pretending to be something it's not uh, and so naturally I am writing very personal music but the hope is that that then creates an experience that people can find themselves in and not that they then necessarily get to know me better I think and I think that that model has worked a lot in the sort of singer-songwriter kind of canon over the last 50 or so years where it's like often singer-songwriters are writing about their own story but the songs become something much uh something much bigger than that, that people can find themselves in, even though they came from a very personal place. Now, I, I think I like that model as a way that, that can be applied to creating art music as well. And I think a lot of the great pieces of art music have been like that, you know, like especially the romantic period, you think of like, what was Brahms going through when they wrote this, this thing here and here? It's like creating these great masterworks, but they came from, you know, something that was happening in their personal life. And I, yeah, I, I'm keen not to try and dampen that process. I think a lot of good art comes from that kind of way of approaching it. Wonderful. It's, it's such a, a refreshing way to, to think about things. I think the uh, the idea that we, we create something and send it off into the world as musicians and uh, how it's... Uh, unpacked, perceived, interpreted, uh, whatever you can provide a framework for it, for sure. And it's absolutely connected to the person who creates it and uh, so on and so forth. But it is ultimately uh, something somebody else is ingesting and, and kind of um, unwinding through their own eyes. And it's 
kind of the beautiful part about uh, creating art like this, that it can be intensely personal. It can be um, really specific to a situation, a life, a person, uh, an experience, but that we always hope that it translates uh, to somebody else uh, from their perspective, from their, from their eyes and how it uh, can provide meaning for them uh, that's not your meaning. And that's, that's kind of a really beautiful thing, but uh, you know, maybe to, to circle back to, to your own specific writing, the, one of the best ways that we can do that is providing something that is accessible for people uh, to ingest. You know, it's, it's not helpful to uh, create that experience if uh, they don't have an entry point and your music is so um, complex and layered, but accessible at the same time. And so it does allow people to uh, hear your music and hear your story of what, what, you're trying to say with that specific thing, but then they can take it on their own path and, and put their own uh, experience into it. So thank you for, for a writing it, but also thank you for being here uh, to talk about it with us today. It's, it's yeah. been really quite lovely. Thank you. Yeah. It's been a real pleasure to, to speak with you about it. And I um, have loved the questions you've asked. So that's all for this episode. You've been listening to the Classical Queer Podcast and Jake and I look forward to being with you next month. The incidental music is courtesy of Jared Miller and the show was produced by Samantha Jane.